This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jenny. Hi, I'm Tamahome. And we're going to talk new releases, recent arrivals, which are sort of mushing together because we don't receive as many of the ones that we actually could receive or how do we just don't get the physical product as much as we used to now. It's, it's all like digitally distributed, right? Right. The way it should be. It's yeah. much easier that way. I got, I got one paper book, uh, that was came unsolicited, you know? Um, and I was just, uh, I think I sent you guys the link to it. Uh, it's called low ball. It's a wild cards novel, which is, prominently listed as being edited by George R. R. Martin and Melinda M. Snodgrass. Uh, Melinda M. Snodgrass is like, uh, she worked on the Star Trek uh, TV shows, I think. Um, but what's interesting to me about this book is, is, you know, the edited by who wrote it. So huh. we go inside and um, that's really hard to determine because they don't actually list that. It says written by Michael Kasut. David Anthony Durham, Melinda Snodgrass, Mary Ann Mo- okay. Mohanraji, or Mohanraj, uh, David D. Levine, Walter John Williams, Carrie Vaughn, and Ian Tregellis. But then uh, you turn to the copyright page, and it's got all these stories, but only some of them are attributed to authors, others are to companies, like the copyrights. And then you go to the very first story in this mosaic novel, as it's called, and that one's by Michael Kasut. But all the subsequent ones are not attributed. So you'd have like you'd have to like say, okay, well, I could probably figure out that uh, the that uh, David Anthony Durham wrote uh, the chapter called "Those About to Die." But who wrote the big bleed? Because that's attributed to uh, Saint Croix Corp production. I don't know who that is. Hmm. I guess you know as. This this is like a superhero book. Yeah. Um, but I have not read any of this series. But like, if if you're a big fan of one of the writers, it'd be kind of hard to tell. You know, if you just wanted to read that person's like, I I like David D. Levine. Uh, I think he's a really good writer. But I don't know how to find his stuff in this book. And I guess you're supposed to read it from cover to cover. But if it is short stories, then I'd like to be able to do that. Hmm. Tammy, you read any of these wild card books? No, I mean, I know what they are. They're like uh, superhero short stories. And uh, George Martin wrote them like in the beginning. I think I guess now he just edits them. No, I, th- I, th- I think he was like part of the group that put it together. Like it was a New Mexico writers uh, role playing sort of uh, thing. And he's always been attached to it, right? Yeah. But because he's so such a big... Uh, big guy, I guess these days. Uh, it's grown in stature along with his his popularity. Yeah, I think they're reprinting the whole series. I think this is a new one though. Yeah, cool. Uh, because these are all you know copyrights twenty fourteen. So, anyways, um, unsolicited or solicited by me. That is, I got a friend of mine to get it for me. I I sent you guys the picture of my giant. Well. I don't. Yeah, I think I sent it to you. Anyways, you responded on Twitter. You tweeted it. Yeah, my giant H.P. Lovecraft, uh, uh, edited by Leslie S. Klinger, 
uh, annotated monster of a t- tome, as they call it. Looks right? awesome. It is pretty pretty great. With an introduction um, by Alan Moore. Yeah, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to reading that, and I think I'm going to do that today if I can get any time. Wait, you're going to read it? Isn't it more like a reference type book? It is a reference type book, but I'm going to read the introduction by Alan Moore. Um, I mean, it has has all the Lovecraft stories, and then they're annotated. It's not all the Lovecraft stories. It's it's sort of you know the top ten or so, (laughs) Um, but it's got a lot of the big ones. And I, I mean, one of the cool things that because I've got a lot of the illustrations from the original Weird Tales, which are put in here. Uh, that's cool, but it's not as cool as like the things that I couldn't get, which are like picture, like photographs of a lot of the buildings. That one of the things that's interesting about Lovecraft is he's obsessed with architecture, and so when you're reading his stuff, he's like talking about gambrel roofs and uh, gables and uh, chimney pots and stuff like that <laughs> constantly. Um, and you say, okay, why is he so obsessed? Well, now you can actually see like uh, the the a lot of the places he's describing are are real places or quasi real places that are based on real places. Um, so you can see what he's talking about. It gives a better um, uh, feeling for you know why he's interested in that. And uh, so there's a lot of photographs in here on top of all the. Uh, hand-drawn illustrations, and uh, and there's a lot of Lovecraft um, manuscripts in there as well. Uh, like, just let, you can see him drawing, like, a little moon phase chart or whatever it is. Very, very cool book. Very interesting, and, and quite different from the uh, other Lovecraft annotations by S.T. Joshi, which I also have, which are much more... Um, uh, less visually oriented and more, you know, like this is a reference to mm. this other novel or it's a good pairing. Then. Yeah. It's, it's a very much, um, it, because ST Joshi's stuff is more like it's his observations. Whereas mm. this is everybody else's basically. Um, so it, it's a, a very good match. And, uh, yeah, I mean, on some pages there's like no notes, they're, they're, each each uh, page has like a, a big column for where the notes could be, um, and in some pages there's nothing, but on other pages it's just completely full of red text and images and such. So, it's it's going to be immensely useful, I think, as a as like you say, a reference book. Yeah, I wonder if you if you went to the library if the, this would be classified as a reference book rather than. It's sort of on the edge. It's 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 almost lar- too large to, uh, you know, it's too large to carry around in your backpack. Hmm. Unless you've got a, you know, nothing else in it. But luckily, I, I won't have to worry about that. But um, Scott, I think, said he had it on order, and uh, I know uh, Mirko in Germany has also got it on order. So all all the Lovecraft fans are ordering this book. Looks amazing. You can do a reference book read-along. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we it's all turned to page 61 now. Um, so those are the two paper books that came in. Okay. What do we got on the uh, digital audiobook front? Well, we have combed the lists and the internet for all of these. Um, I have Urban Fantasy up first. Okay. And I've included 
this first book because it's the first in a series. I haven't been really including books from the middle of series unless they're super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is from a series called Servants of Fate, of Fate by Sarah Fine. This one is called Marked, and it's narrated by Emily Foster um, from Brilliance Audio. I'll just read the description really quick. Thanks. In a broken landscape carved by environmental collapse, Boston paramedic Kasia Ferry risks life and limb out on the front lines of a fragile and dangerous city. What most don't know, including her sexy new partner, Eli Margulis, (laughs) is that while Casey works to save lives, she has another job, ferrying the dead to the afterlife. Once humans are marked by fate, the powerful fairies are called to escort the vulnerable souls to either eternal bliss or unending fire and pain. And it's fairies as in F-E-R-R-Y, not right. like the fae. <laughs> Although it'll work nicely as an audiobook uh, in the amb- ambiguity there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I would want... This is the kind of book that would give me a nightmare. Like, well, wait a second, I'm actually going to go to Unending Fire? I don't think I want to get on that boat. <laughs> and the paramedic is the one doing it, yikes. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you don't want her to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of conflict of interest. Totally. <laughs> or maybe she works harder to save people. That's possible. I guess we'd have to read the book. Because then she can go to bed earlier. <laughs> You know, we've seen lots of detectives and uh, police officers. I don't know that we've seen any paramedic characters in this kind of novel. I think you're right. <laughs> uh, all right. Until the End of the World, written by Sarah Lyons Fleming, narrated by Julia Whelan. I think that's how you pronounce Whelan. Uh, 13 hours, 15 minutes, and that's part of a new series starting up called Until the End of the World. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cassie Forrest isn't surprised to learn that the day she's decided to get her life together is also the day the world ends. After all, she's been on a self-imposed losing streak since her survivalist parents died. She's stopped painting, broken off her engagement to Adrian, and dated a real jerk. Rectifying her mistakes has to wait, however, because Cassie and her friends have just enough time to escape Brooklyn for her parents' cabin before Bornavarius the... What's that? The Bornavarius. <laughs> Bornavarius 60 turns them into zombies, too. Okay, Bornavarius. Hmm. Okay, that's got to mean something. Um, urban fantasy? Well... Zombies. She's leaving know. the city. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's whatever that stuff is. <laughs> you know, one of the best movies, science fiction movies, almost nobody's seen is a movie called Until the End of the World. Have you guys heard of it? Uh-uh. It's very, very good. And it's really long. Um, it's, it's one of those uh, European-style movies, or I almost want to say Russian-style movies. It you know, seems to take forever to watch, like 400 minutes long or something like that. Um. It's not really related to this other than by the title, but uh, it's really interesting because it's it's set in just, I guess, just after the turn of the millennium. uh, That is the last millennium uh, into the 21st century. Um, But it's got, uh, you know, it's got a a few key science fiction technologies um, and it spans like the globe. It's like a globe trotting sort of adventure movie. Um and it's mostly in English, but a little bit in French, and uh, I recommend it. Hmm. Sounds good. All right. We keep going? 
No. Cam, you want to do the Dark Thorn? Um, sure. Um, what's well, small font? You got the small font. <laughs> uh, beneath the streets of Seattle, a long forgotten war is about to be renewed. Richard McAllister, a spiritually destitute homeless man and knight of the Yin Safe, predicts one of seven portals linking his world to that of Anwen with Noah Fowl, where the <laughs> Fey Tuatha De Danann of antiquity has been relegated by a long-running religious war. Unknown to Richard, though, powerful forces are aligning against him, and all he stands to keep against him and all he, he stands to keep safe. In the wild of a discarded world, Philip Plantagenet, son of Henry II, moves to claim a birthright nine centuries in the making, one that drives him to eliminate the Tuatha de Danann at any cost to both worlds. In the halls of Vatican City, Cardinal Vicar Cormac Pell O'Connor schemes to control the <laughs> Hallower the Unfettered Knight, one who possesses the great power known as the Dark Thorn. The three men are on a collision course with history and their futures, for in the wilds of Anwen, death comes as easily as magic. Haunted by a past he can't forget and the nightly responsibility he can't shun, Richard is drawn into levels of machination and two worlds far darker than any he has prepared for. So that that's by Sean Speakman. The book is by Sean Speakman. Narrator is Nick Bedell. Mm-hmm. And it's 17 hours long and we've got a reviewer for it. Yeah. Uh, this sounds a little bit like uh, it's, it's like it's it's Middle Ages stuff going on in the underneath the streets of Seattle, mm-hmm. which is kind of kind of weird, like homeless people who are sharing a del- delusion. <laughs> what's going? You know, it's like, I am the Knight of Yin. You know, <laughs> sounds like the Fisher King. Uh, you haven't seen that movie. Is, is that what that's about? Yeah, kind of. With Robin Williams, and he thinks he's a knight, and oh. he has to get the Holy Grail. That sounds good. Well, and Jesse, yeah. have you ever been? On a tour of the Seattle Underground? No, I, 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 I think it was closed when we went there. Oh, it's so cool because it's where all like the Chinese people used to live. And before they built the city again on top of it, because mm-hmm. it kept flooding. Mm-hmm. And all the, you know, the toilets would explode into the sky every time the tide <laughs> came in. <laughs> but if, if you're walking around Seattle and you look down and you see these purple... Um, glass squares it's letting light into what's still underneath there oh um so i just wonder like is this author from there does he know about this part of it and is that going to play into it because it was really cool because you you should be able to like see these knights and things running around underneath your feet (laughs) it would be really kind of a neat image yeah if you were like going to on vacation to visit the the seattle underground that would have be the book to read, wouldn't it? Yeah. Cool. Sounds different. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, that, that sounds like it's going to be part of a series as well, but yeah. maybe it's just a really long book. Yeah, it's hard to know. Next one's no no shorter, though. Yeah. This one is Entangled, The Eater of Souls by Graham Hancock from Brilliance Audio, and it's even longer, 17 hours and 39 minutes. 
Um, I'm going to skip a little first part. This is a time slip novel alternating between present day California, Brazil and prehistoric Spain with two teenage female protagonists who must come together to avert an incredibly bloodthirsty takeover of the human race. It's the first book in a trilogy relating the story of an unrelenting evil master magician named Sulpa who is on the loose and determined to destroy humanity. Leone, a troubled teen from modern-day Los Angeles, and Rhea, a young woman who lives in Stone Age, Spain, meet in a parallel dimension outside the flow of time to stop Sulpa's spectacular, deadly materialization in the modern world. Uh-huh. I like the uh, the name checks here on this book. are Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Golden Compass, Philip Pullman, Stephen King, Neil Gaiman. We know what we're going for here. Yeah. Whether it lives up to that, I'm I'm curious to. I mean, that's pretty high, high standard. Well, and it claims to be grounded in solid anthropological and scientific research. Oh, that sounds oh. good. Oh, and <laughs> at the very end, including the Neanderthal enigma, the nature of consciousness, the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, parallel realms, time travel, near death, and out of body experiences. All oh, no wonder it's so long. <laughs> yeah. It could, I mean, it might be too much, or it might be just, you know, that those 17 hours and 39 minutes are well used. Yeah, it could be. That's a lot. That's a lot. Stone Age Spain. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a, a jam-packed book. How come we don't have a, a re- reviewer for this already? I don't know. Didn't have uh, anyone. So hopefully somebody listening to this will call us up and say, hey, that one for me. <laughs> well, and I should point out, this came out in Audible three years ago. So it's just, oh, just oh, hitting brilliance on CD. Hmm. Oh, that's surprising. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm gonna go read the reviews for this after. But what if it's already been on Audible for a while? There should be some. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next one is uh, part of a series. So we can skip. is that? Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, that must be a good one. We could just mention it. Half Off Ragnarok by Sean and McGuire. It's book three that's of that series. Comedy. Half <laughs> Off Ragnarok. <laughs> that's a funny title. Yeah. Uh, okay, V Wars. This sounds very familiar. Blood and Fire: New Stories of the Vampire Wars. Hmm. Maybe this is a comic. I think I read the comic. Mm-hmm. I think it's a John- comic adaption of it. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Julie um, really likes him. Uh, Jonathan Mayberry has a whole series of books about uh, a government guy fighting zombies and stuff. Mm-hmm. New Stories of the Vampire Wars. It's twelve hours. Uh, and it's from Blackstone. It's been one year since the virus triggered junk DNA and people all over the world started changing, becoming something else, craving blood. It's been ten months since the word vampire stopped being something from old monster stories and Hollywood movies. It's been six, six months since our world and theirs erupted into war. Two since an uneasy peace was signed and one hour since that peace was shattered. The war is here again, the vampire war. Our world will burn. Our world will bleed. When anyone can turn, when every street is a battlefield, there is nowhere to run. The Wars, Blood and Fire features all new stories of vampire wars by Kevin J. Anderson, Scott Sigler, Larry Correa, Joe McKinney, Yvonne Navarro, Weston Oshi. I don't know how to say that. Uh, James A. Moore and Jonathan Mayberry. Okay, so again, I guess another sort of mosaic novel. Mm-hmm. Well, a bunch of short stories. Or, or short story collection, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying mosaic novel. <laughs> I guess is what they mean. Hmm. 
Okay, new stories of the so there must be previous uh, yeah. series. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not smitten with the idea of lots and lots of vampires. I think one vampire is usually enough for a story. But that's that's okay. Someone else can enjoy it. <laughs> I have no next up. No, no preference. Nah. One vampire, six vampires. As long as there's vampires, uh, you're good. There are a dime a dozen. Okay. <laughs> Half off Ragnarok and dime a dozen for vampires. <laughs> Wild Alone, a novel by Karazi Zukova. 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 Yeah. Or, or I think Bulgarian. Bulgarian translation. I'm assuming based on the description. This was just really different and it sounded interesting. It doesn't it comes out for like in a, like a week or two. Oh cool. Um it's from Harper Audio. I guess I'll go ahead and read it. Thank you. Arriving at Princeton for her freshman year, Thea Slavin finds herself alone, a stranger in a strange land. Away from her family and her Eastern European homeland for the first time, she struggles to adapt to unfamiliar American ways and the challenges of college life, including a young man whose brooding good looks and murky past intrigue her. Drawn to the elusive Reese and his equally handsome and mysterious brother Jake, she ventures into a sensual mythic underworld as irresistible as it is dangerous. In this shadow world that seems to evoke Greek mythology and the Bulgarian legends of the Samodivi, or Wild Alones, forest witches who beguile and entrap men, Thea will discover a family secret bound to transform her forever. If she can accept that dead doesn't always mean gone and love doesn't always distinguish between the two. I think she's a English speaker uh, because that Krazi Zukurva is on Twitter and is tweeting in English. Okay. So it's probably so not it's a not translation. Okay. That, that'd be my guess. Doesn't sound terrible. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about Bulgarian mythology, so. That'd be interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't seem to say anything like part one of a series, right? Mm-mm. That 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 might be a very good thing. And only 14 hours. I mean, that's slim compared to many. Hmm. Uh, next up, Tammy, you want to do this one? Creatures and Noises in the Night. The New category. Category. <laughs> I like I like the... I, I think that should be a genre. <laughs> I like that better than urban fantasy. Creatures and Noises in the Night. You want me to read Mountains of Madness? Sure. You know this story? I, I've heard of it. I don't know if I've read it. It's like uh, either one or the only of Lovecraft's novels. Uh, Okay. Is this where Cthulhu comes out? No, I think Cthulhu might be mentioned in this one, but it's not Cthulhu. Uh, That's The Call of Cthulhu, which is a novella or novelette. Okay. It's set. This is this is one that Benicio. No, not Benicio del Toro. Who's the other del Toro? Uh, Guillermo. Guillermo. Guillermo del Toro wanted to make this into a movie, but I, I think, think uh, South Park did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, they had a Cthulhu episode. I'm not sure which story. I, it wasn't really based on any story. Uh, no, this is not. This is not a Cthulhu story. It's just a Lovecraft right, story. Right. Are you going to read it? You want me to read it? Uh, I'll, I'll read it. Well, okay. It's not too hard. But but you have all the annotations. 
Uh, that is true, and I'll get that out and see if I can find an annotation while you read that. How about that? Okay. The Chilling Tale of an Antarctic Expedition Gone Terribly Wrong from Master Horror Writer H.P. Lovecraft. At the Mountains of Madness is a brilliantly told horror novel. Best of all, it's a perfect Lovecraft story combining everything that makes Lovecraft, well, Lovecraftian. <laughs> Constant impending dread, mysteries beyond time and space, characters driven to the brink of and then beyond insanity. Yep, and silence knocking at the doors of the nightmarish unknown. Well, let me give you the first three annotations okay. from the Mountain Planet. So it says uh, annotation number one, right from the title, written during February and March 1931. The story first appeared in three installments in Astounding Stories 16, number 6, blah, 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 blah. By the way, all three of those are now on the PDF page, and you can see the original illustrations there if you don't have a copy of this book. Um, and then it says, uh, The following is a restored, corrected text prepared by S.G. Joshi. The original published text had many different paragraph breaks and cut a considerable amount of Lovecraft's manuscript. The changes are indicated below. Uh, annotation number two. The narrator referred to only as Dyer, that's D-Y-E-R, which is kind of, uh, along with many other pieces of evidence, my proof that Lovecraft is actually a humorist, because the main character's name is Dyer. Hmm. Um, here is a fully identified, oh, uh, known only as Dyer here is fully identified in The Shadow Out of Time, which is another story as Professor William Dyer of the Geology Department of Miskatonic University. See text accompanying note 51 in The Shadow of Time Below. And then annotation number three. Lovecraft, ever the antiquarian, never refers to the story uh, in the story to Antarctica or the Antarctic with a capital A, except, except uh, as part of formal names of the Antarctic Ocean or the Antarctic Circle. The name Antarctica, based on the Greek word Antarktos, meaning the opposite of the bear, a constellation in the northern hemisphere, and its English usage Antarctic, with a small a, was adopted by Scottish cartographer John George Bartholomew, who in 1887 was the first to publish a chart with that name applied to the landmass. See John George Bartholomew and the Naming of Antarctica Maps and Atlases, published in 1850, had referred to the Antarctic Ocean, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Right, so, um, and it's true. Lovecraft loves like that sort of inane detail, so he wouldn't capitalize it, and that's why it's never capitalized. So, <laughs> um, yeah, if you if you want to read the story um, without those notes, just go online somewhere you can find it. But if you want to know everything about what's going on and why he chose to do stuff, this is a really good book for it. Um, Jim Kilvaney, I think he's he's a really prolific narrator now. Uh, he's doing a lot of these uh, uh, brilliant sort of public domain books. Yeah, I think that he must sell them to them, like they just buy them up. I'm pretty sure you're right. But I'm pretty sure that's the guy that several of our reviewers have not been too fond of. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. I would look at some of our reviews of him okay. on the, that we posted on the site, because I know it was someone named Jim. I might have the wrong Jim, though. So apologies if I have it wrong, but mm. but you're right. Yeah. It's a lot of the like the older stories, the horror, yeah, like and science Morton fiction, and stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, he's been around a lot. So, Next up, well, it's, I was gonna say it's only five hours, so it can't be that long. Yeah. No. 
what's uh what's next? Who's gonna read it? Uh I think Tam should. I oh. like. Kaiju Rising Age of Monsters. This is based on the the Del Toro movie? Uh, probably the collection. So uh, I would say the reason this book came out is because of the Del Toro movie. Right. Oh, was it? What was the name of that movie? PC Edge or something. Pacific Edge. <laughs> Pacific Edge. So. That's right. <laughs> oh no, Pacific Rim. Rim. Pacific Edge is a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson, oh. which is very very good, by the way. Okay. Um, is there a kaiju uh, in it? Uh no. It's a it's oh. a utopian novel. Okay. Um, and one of the interesting things about that utopian novel is that uh, it's probably the closest to a utopian novel that isn't actually dystopian in some way. The the negative things are pretty minor, like you know some conflict with you know a politician about how how much they're going to recycle or you know what kind of goods. <laughs> you know, it's very um, very right. utopian. And uh, but no, it's very good. I, I really enjoyed it. Really interesting world. Okay. Um, but, so yeah, so kaiju are like uh, giant monsters, like Godzilla? Yeah. yeah. Daikaiju is like god monster, and kaiju is just monster. Okay. Uh, it's a collection of 23 stories focused around the theme of strange creatures in the vein of Pacific Rim, Godzilla, Cloverfield, and more. The anthology opens with a forward by Jeremy Robinson, author of Project Nemesis, High-selling kaiju novel in the United States since the old Godzilla books. There were Godzilla books, and perhaps even more than those. Then, from New York Times bestsellers to indie darlings, Kaiju Rising: Age of Monsters features authors that are perfectly suited for writing with larger-than-life stories, including Peter Kleins, Larry Correa, James Lovegrove, Jeannie Koch, James Maxey, Jonathan Wood, C.L. Werner, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it goes on and on. Monster yeah. stories. Howard Andrew Jones is in there too. Okay. Swallow. Okay. Um, eighteen hours. So it, it is really short stories. If there's twenty three spread out. Hmm. Casey's going to review that. Wow. I. I. You know. I do not envy Casey going twenty three kaiju stories in a row. <laughs> a nightmare for me. You know, it's just too many of one thing. Even if you like your peanut butter with, you know, everything, you're going to have a lot of peanut butter in you by the time you finish whatever meals you're, you know, the next 23 meals. Yeah, it's like right now I'm reading Flannery O'Connor short stories, the complete ah, <laughs> short Yeah, not, not a good thing to read back to back. No, and it's like, I mean, I know she's not science fiction or fantasy, but it's the same kind of experience. Like, you start laughing because, like, every in every story there's someone who dies and a parent that makes you feel guilty and too much of the n-word and you're like oh <laughs> yeah. you got flannery o'connor overload yeah uh, so, uh next two are bradbury yeah we've I'll, been getting lots of bradbury coming out i'll read the first one because i like i like me some bradbury um but i you know he is also he's one of those guys like flannery o'connor or, you know anybody really who you can you can't read back to back to back to back because it is just you know it's too much of that person yeah all right so the playground uh read by jonathan davis yay um is a post-apocalyptic slash apocalyptic uh science fiction uh, is it novel i guess it is the playground was part of the first hardcover edition of ray bradbury's legendary work 
Fahrenheit 451, published in 1953. In the story, Charles Underhill is a widower who, go, who will do anything to protect his young son Jim from the horrors of the playground, a playground which he and the boy pass by daily, and the tumult of which, the activity, brings back to Charles the anguish of his own childhood. Yeah, this is very, very Bradbury. It's the horror of the playground. Oh my god! The playground, like childhood itself, is a nightmare of torment and vulnerability. Charles fears his sensitive son will be destroyed there, just as he almost was so many years ago. Underhill's sister, uh, Carol, who has moved, to, moved in to help raise the young boy after his mother passed away, feels differently. The playground, she believes, is a preparation for life. Jim will surely, Jim will survive the experience, she feels, and he will be better for it, and more equipped to to deal with the rigor and obligation of adult existence. Underhill is caught between his own fear, his sister's invocation of reason, and feels paralyzed. A mysterious boy calls out to him from the playground and seems to know him all too, we all too well why Underhill is there and what the source of the agony really is. A mysterious manager, quote capitalized, also lurks to whom the stranger boy, strange boy directs Underhill. An agreement can be made, perhaps, that this is what the boy tells Underhill. Perhaps Jim can be spared the playground, but of course a substitute must be found. It's, the, it's like the anxiety of you know taking your kid to the park. Mm -hmm. is, is it a novel? I think it must be a short story because it says it's part of the first hardcover edition of Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't not, seem to fit into that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Doesn't at all. It feels like it's a short story or yeah. something. Uh, I didn't it, get it, how long it is, so I don't know. It's very Radbury, though. Mm -hmm. It also feels like like a, sort of a Richard Matheson story. You know, you read a lot of Richard Matheson. Tam, mm -mm. you read yeah, any some. I mean, I know he's written Twilight Zone and Star Trek and stuff. Uh, well, yeah, but like his. I've read some of his short stories too. He's very He's sort of psychologically. Uh, you know, people who get sort of stuck in some sort of phase, or you know, they they're uh, they're worried. Like some some, uh, I guess the classic one is the Incredible Shrinking Man, where you know this guy just suddenly starts shrinking, gets smaller and smaller, and as he gets smaller, his life, you know, his wife starts treating him as a child, and hmm. and uh, <laughs> he's he's just getting smaller and smaller, and so he runs away from home. <laughs> like a child would. And then uh, he's on the run and some creepy uh, uh, child molester tries to uh, get in his pants and is like, what the hell is going on in this book, right? Um, well, he escapes that and just keeps going and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until he's like, there's a giant cat. <laughs> going to eat him and he gets smaller and smaller. And, and it's like this man becomes some you know reduced to nothing is is i guess the fear that's going on and the the you know like the the journey is actually the whole point of the book it's not the like he's going to reverse it and you know somehow get revenge on any of those people who did, you know the cat who tried to get him or whatever there's nothing like that it's just sort of you're in the state of like, even the child molester is like, what a horrible thing to have happen, right? There's no follow-up to that. It's just like, ugh. So reading the book, you feel like, oh, my God, there's, there's some psychological state that the author's trying to deal with. 
And uh, you, you get into that psychological state, but you don't feel like a sense of, hey, now I've grown and now I know what to do. It's like you just feel, ugh. And Ray Bradbury's got a lot of stories like that where you, he's, got a, he's got one called The Small Assassin, which is about uh, how his baby wants to kill him. <laughs> he's got a newborn child and his baby wants to kill him. <laughs> and he's like, he's going to creep out of his bed and come into my bedroom and stab me to death or something like that. And uh, it's like, it's just because he has a feeling, right? And then he sits down at the keyboard and starts writing and then he's got a story. And then we feel, oh, a creepy story. Is the baby's name Tina? Mm, that is a Richard Matheson one, I think, not a Bradbury. Okay. I don't know. Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, read by Christian Rommel. Or Rommel? Rommel. This is a novel. Mm. This is one Scott should be reading for us, because this is one of his favorites. Mm-hmm. He probably did a Good Story episode on it. Good Story uh, is hard to find. I don't think he has. I, I, don't, I think this I, is the first time it's an audio. I mean, I guess oh, they could really? have read print. Interesting. But, yeah. uh, well, it may have been out of print for a while, but... Um, this is a very famous uh, Bradbury. Oh, yeah. Even I've read this one. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe you should read the description then. Sure. Well, it comes in at nine hours and eight minutes from Brilliance Audio, and Scott didn't pick up on it, so Rob is going to review it. <laughs> um, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. The carnival rolls in sometime after the midnight hour of a chill Midwestern October Eve. Ushering in Halloween a week before its time, the Calliope's shrill siren song beckons to all with a seductive promise of dreams and youth regained. Young boyhood companions James Nightshade and Will Halloway are the first to heed its call. From a place of safety, they watch a midway come to spectral life. Their emotions are riot of eagerness, trepidation, bravado, and uncertainty, for they can sense the change that's in the air, that this is the autumn in which innocence must vanish in the harsh, acrid smoke of disillusionment and horror. Cougar and Dark's pandemonium shadow show has come to Greentown, Illinois, to destroy every life touched by its strange and sinister mystery. And two inquisitive boys standing precariously on the brink of adulthood will soon discover the secret of the satanic rary shows, maze, and mirrors as they learn all too well the heavy cost of wishes and the stuff of nightmares. All those who still dream and remember, and those who have heard the whispering but have yet to experience its dark poetic power, you are welcome. A shadow show like none other is about to begin again. Uh, Tam points out that it has been done as a part of a good story. It's hard to find podcasts. Yes, episode 21. You've got a better memory than I have. All all I know is Scott loves this story. Um, He loves Ray Bradbury, but I think specifically this is one of his favorites. So I have a little Ray Bradbury story. Oh. When I was at the National Storytelling Festival this year in Jonesboro, Tennessee, there were a couple of storytellers that did Rad Brad- Ray Bradbury's stories. Mm-hmm. And I found out that there is a Ra- Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival every year at the Waukegan Public Library, which I think may be the real-life location of Green River, Illinois, because it's in mm-hmm. Illinois. Just kind of a cool thing. So these people do these performances of these stories with voices and it's really amazing. 
Did they do Ray Bradbury impression? No. That's sort of a round mouth, you know, I'm Ray Bradbury, sort of like that. No. And it's well, not It's I'm, not like an audio I'm book. I'm in Illinois. <laughs> no, I live in... No, that's not no. exactly... And it's not like they're reading all the words. They, they do a performance of the story. Mm-hmm. So it's... The people that were there were really amazing. I just thought, you know, it's so specific. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they've done well, it. It's, there's going to be the 10th year of it this next year. Oh, they think so it was dramatized? Yeah. And some well, they're, uh, they're audiobooks, aren't they? They're just people standing up and no. performing stories. No, it's not like they're reading it verbatim. Oh, never mind. They're That's... performing it as a story. So they're, they've got it memorized or something? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and there was one at the festival that was done with, by two people. So they kind of... There were there were kind of two characters in the story, and they would trade oh. off. Anyway, it was something I didn't know was even out there, and I can just really hear someone doing this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Just kind of. I've never read this one. It's it's. Uh, I somehow missed it. I, I mean, I like. Well, I like carnivals, but not enough to like read a book about them. I guess is the. The thing, and I know, like Ray Bradbury was really like in his own life. He he talk, tells a story about how, when as a boy in Waukegan, he went to the carnival, and and the one of the magicians there like uh, brought him up on the stage and you know gave him an electric shock or something, and then he he stuck around after the show, and he he says, "You, my boy, are going to grow up to be a very blah 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 blah," right, and and that really stu- stuck with him. Um, hmm. But I think That's Tam me. should read the the next <clears throat> one because I want to read the one after that. <laughs> well, I was going to relate this book to the Night Circus, which I know Jenny. Was oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that true? Is a, oh, yeah. Circus and carnival are similar. The yeah, the, the night, night Circus, too, Jenny. No, I mean oh. something wicked this way comes is more about an evil circus, and the night oh. night circus is more about just a magical circus. Oh, okay. This one is more, I don't know, there's something about the characters that remind me of the boys in Good Omens, you know, that become the Antichrist. (laughs) There's that kind of tone to it a little bit. Um, Maybe not the humor side, but just the kind of villainy of pre-adolescent boys, you know. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, Speaking of of Good Omens... um, Right now on BBC, they've got uh, a new audio drama adaptation of Good Omens. Um, I've heard it's great. Have you been listening? Yeah, I have. Um, and it is it is funny. It's you know Douglas Adams style humor, um, and it's got you know the forces of good and the forces of evil. And you're not sure which one is which most of the time because mm-hmm. they're sort of they're they're both working against God's plan. At this uh, is what I'm gathering so far. But uh, it's yeah, it's 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 very humorous and it's well done. Uh, Neil Gaiman has cameos, uh, at least one cameo so far. Have you read the book before? No, I never have. Oh, I know that Julie uh, Davis is a huge fan of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, ter- I, I'm not a Terry Pratchett reader is is probably the issue. Yeah, it's more Terry Pratchett than Neil Gaiman. In yeah. Tone. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah. Uh, I am enjoying the audio drama though, hmm. and it's it seems to have a lot. I mean, it's six episodes, I think. That's not bad. Uh, and I've started on the second one, so 
Didn't you retweet yeah. something that they're going to release it and it's going to be longer? Uh, well, I, I, I don't remember that, but it is, uh, it, it, there is, I think it's completed now. I, I listened to it on my, uh, iPhone using the, uh, iPlayer radio app, which is only available in the UK. So you, what you have to do is you have to be really sneaky. You change your, your, you know, app store to the UK and then you download the app. And then uh, you can listen. Hmm. Um, but if you don't have the app, uh, you can't listen unless you. I guess you can go online uh, to the BBC website. But yeah, it's it's very very listenable. Oh, you can listen online in your country, but not on phone in your country. Yeah, the app. You have to have the app in order to uh, <laughs> to listen via the app, which makes it portable, right? Yeah. Um, and if if you don't, then you have to go to the internet and sit in front of your computer, which is ridiculous. Like, what if you I'm going to sit down in front of my computer and listen to an audio drama. That'll be fun. What if you go to the web browser in your phone? I don't think it would work. Okay, that'd be my guess. But even so, it's it it just you know doesn't have the functionality yeah. because you know you want to pause it, you have to go into your Safari or whatever. So I just wouldn't do it that way. Okay. Do the tri- do the trickier method, which is you you go to the iTunes store, then you change it to the UK, right? And then you buy the app, which is free. Uh, you download it, install it on your your phone or iPad, and then um, you have it. Now you're stuck in the U- UK store until you next try and purchase something, but um, whatever, it'll change back. You can figure it out eventually. <laughs> It's it's really a multi-step process that's really stupid. They don't but. test you on it like spell color. <laughs> it would be the same for him. Yeah, it's the same up here. Oh, oh. Speaking of which, um, right I was listening to uh, one of the few podcasts I was listening to over the uh, Christmas break was uh, Mr. Jim Moon's um, show about Christmas annuals. You guys know what these are? Mm-mm. No. Okay, so in the UK and in Canada, every year there would be books uh, that are designed for children that are, you know, you purchase them in October or so, and uh, you give them as a gift, and it's like a, a book that they can read for the whole year. Oh, like cool. Chock full of good stuff, right? And uh, one of the ones he mentions, um, actually, I, I went to the used bookstore and bought... Uh, because I don't think they make it anymore, at least they don't release it here anymore, uh, is a book called Rupert. Um, Rupert is this, like, bear. <laughs> He's like an anthropomorphic bear who lives in a uh, the village of Nutville, <laughs> I think it is, in England. And he has adventures, and uh, on every page, there's four panels. of. It's almost like a comic. There's four panels, and uh, under each picture is a rhyming couplet telling what's going on. And then at the bottom of the page, there's a just general description uh, of what what's happening in the pictures on that page. And at the very top of the page, there's a description of what's happening in all the panels. So it's a book that you can read either as uh, uh, by yourself if you're like a beginning reader, just by or I guess as a baby you could just look at the pictures. Um, but as a beginning reader, you just read the top and then look at the pictures. As sort of a middle advanced reader, you can read the rhyming couplets 
which are using very basic English, um, and look at the pictures. Uh, or you can have your mom or dad read you the entire text at the bottom. And it's very fun. So I gave that to uh, one of my, you know, three-year-old cousins. Uh, well, I guess for her mom and dad to read to her. And uh, I think that's a really good book. <laughs> uh, but you guys don't have them down there. The, the one cool thing is, is like, he's saying, oh, these aren't available outside the UK. So, no, we got them in Canada, because I had one as a kid. The cool thing about in Canada, we have all the American books, but we also have a lot of the UK books, or at least we used to. So we have a, a mix of both, which is nice. So when books are published in the UK, are they published in Canada at the same time? They in the past that was more likely that yes they were like we have a lot more Penguin UK books than you guys do you don't or, really see the Penguin UK books in the states or the, Galantz uh, Galantz yeah um, there's a lot of yeah sort of UK published titles that somehow they because for the longest time you know Canada was uh, almost part of the empire right or I guess it was part of the empire. So we were treated more like a domestic market. But I think that's... Well, so are we. <laughs> no, Canada is treated as a domestic market by the States and the UK is what I'm saying. You know, all the books that are published in the States are also published in Canada. And some of the books that are published in the UK are also published in Canada. Something like that. Mm -hmm. So, long story short, are you going to read this Haruki Murakami thing for me? For me? Yeah, because yeah, I want to read the next one. I'm kind of surprised this is in audio, because I think it's basically made to be like a fancy paper book. But uh, let me read it. From the internationally acclaimed author Haruki Murakami, a fantastical short novel about a boy imprisoned in a nightmarish library, a lonely boy, <laughs> a mysterious girl... And a tormented sheep man must plot their escape from the nightmarish library of internationally acclaimed uh, best-selling. I think we heard that already. Haruki, Haruki. Murakami's A Wild Imagination. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's I've a seen story the paper book. It's Strange Library. Forgot to yeah. say that. <laughs> oh, Strange Library. But I think the, the, the paper book is very fancy. There's all kinds of different uh, shapes of paper inside it. So I don't mm. know how amazing the audio would be. Maybe you go, you get, they go together. Kirby Haybourne's yeah. the narrator. Mm -hmm. It's just an hour. Yeah, I don't think that's a novel. I think right. that's that's what that's what we call a book when we're trying to sell you on it, so that you pay more for it. I think. But it's about libraries, so that's a Jenny book. Yeah, actually, it sounds good. And Jenny, you're going to do the review. Mm -hmm. Have you started the book already? I have listened to it once, but I need to listen to it again before I review it. Hmm. Okay. All right, so this is the one I wanted to read because I'm a big fan of Stefan Rudnicki's narration, and I'm starting to get into Robert W. Chambers. I've just read uh, one book so far, but uh, this sounded right uh, up your alley. <laughs> it totally is, yeah. Some old moldering uh, tome that's been revived because of uh, uh, True. Uh, what was that? True Detective. Remember last year, True Detective had this big thing about. The King in Yellow or the Yellow King. Um, that's why this is getting the revive. So Maker of Moons, The Maker of Moons by Robert W. Chambers. It's 8.4 hours, and it's read by Stefan Rennicki. Here's the description. Released one year after the publication of The King in Yellow, a milestone of supernatural fiction, 
Robert W. Chambers' title story of this short story collection is considered one of the finest weird tales. It is followed by a series of romantic Art Nouveau stories. Chambers' love, love of naturalistic scenery, symbolic animals, uh, symbolic animal figures, and ghostly imagery are on full display as he weaves his characters through this, these otherworldly tales originally published in 1896. Uh, yeah, and it's weird because uh, he, he will do this thing where he starts a collection with a basically what's a sort of a weird horror Lovecraftian tale, and then subsequent ones are more like about art, <laughs> which is kind of weird because you're mixing, right? But um, one of the ones that was really cool that uh, was in the previous collection called The King in Yellow um, is about some artists in Paris, and one of them is invented a new way to make sculptures, and the way he makes sculptures is he uh, he takes the object that he wants to turn into a sculpture, and he places it in a sort of a bath of this new liquid chemical that he's got, and it petrifies it, right? So uh, you could take like a flower and you place it in, in this bath, and after a minute or two, uh, you get some tongs and you can pull it out, and it's, it's like a stone flower. So it's like a way of cheating in art, right? <laughs> you just actually get the object and put it in there rather than create it uh, out of the original material. And of course, something goes horribly wrong. Sounds like we should do a read-along of a Chambers story. Chambers is really fun. Yeah, we, we've done uh, we, we've done one, uh, I think. I know we've done at least one. How about uh, the King in Yellow? That's the one we did, okay. <laughs> I think. Um, I think it was the King in Yellow. Oh, no, it was the Repair of Reputations. So the, the King in Yellow is not actually a book. Um, the King in Yellow is a play that's mentioned in the, in the short stories in the book called The King in Yellow. Uh, and if you read the play, uh, you go mad. Huh. And there's little excerpts from the play uh, in the stories. Hmm. So That's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to this Maker of Moons. All right. I'm going to move on to the next one because yep. we're only halfway through the list and it's been an hour already. Hello, well, everyone. Let's speed it up. Let's speed it up. <laughs> the Last American Vampire by Seth Graham Smith, the author of like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and those kinds of books, mm-hmm. narrated by McLeod Andrews, 14 hours, comes out January 13th. In Reconstruction-era America, vampire Harry Henry Sturgis is searching for renewed purpose in the wake of his friend Abraham Lincoln's shocking death. It will be an expansive journey that will first send him to England for an unexpected encounter with Jack the Ripper, then to New York City for the birth of a new American century, the dawn of the electric era of Tesla and Edison, and the blazing disaster of the 1937 Hindenburg crash. And on the front of the cover, it's that black and white photo of the... I guess the, Hindenburg. No, the the Navy guy kissing the woman. You know, oh. that I think it's a Navy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, only he's a vampire and he's sucking ah. her neck instead. It's really funny. Nice. <laughs> well, it sounds like a sort of a fun period period vampire story. Yeah, and as much as I resisted him, I really enjoyed Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So it's I think one of the reasons that book did so well is because he is a good writer. Yeah, it's a good combination of things. Like he he ties it all together really well. Mm-hmm. So, all right, 
You can see a lot of real history into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's move into the military sci-fi section. Okay, so the first two books are part of a kind of a set, a duo, the Atlas books by Peter mm-hmm. Burkrot, by read by Isaac Hook. So we can probably combine those together. Mm-hmm. Total, there are almost 30 hours, and Casey is going to review both of these. They're from Brilliance Audio. Have you guys heard of these before? No. Uh, I'm trying to find a way to let me, summarize let me do it. it. I, I sort of know what these are about now that Good. I'm looking at Three times the height of an ordinary man, ten times wider, the Atlas Mech represents the peak of combat engineering. <laughs> Raid Galal will become a one-man army if he can survive the training. The Moths, M-O-T-H, uh, elite warriors, product, products of the most arduous military training known to man. Only Moths can master the devastating atomic power battle suits of blah, 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 blah. Okay, so what these two books are about is uh, back in the 80s, I played a game called Mech Warrior or Battletech. There's another name for it. Sort of inspired by a Japanese um, uh, Robotech. If you guys know, Tam, you might remember Robotech. Uh, it's a, I know it's about sort it. of an anime, um, futuristic Japanese Navy uh, in outer space where their airplanes turn into giant robots fighting suits, right. and that's what it sounds like this is about. Or Pacific now, Edge. Yeah, going back to, no, not Pacific Edge, Pacific Rim. Rim. Pacific Edge is the Kim Stanley Robinson book. Uh, Pacific Rim, uh, this is totally, yeah, sort of reinvigorated by the Pacific Rim. Or Edge uh, of Tomorrow, the Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, except Edge of Tomorrow, that that's more like Starship Troopers, because that's like a power armor. Right where your you know your legs are in the you know much bigger. Yeah, this is this sounds like a mech is like it. It's basically a walking tank, right? It has legs and it can has arms and it picks up giant guns and it smashes things with its giant hands and stuff like that. Very fun. Um, so if these are any good, um, that'd be good because Mech Warrior was really fun and it was also a computer game. And I think it's a new computer game. It's been re- rebooted recently. I think that's why these are coming out, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, if, if the first one's good, uh, the second one's probably good. I think there might have even been a mech uh, called the Atlas. Uh, because Atlas, of course, is the guy who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. <laughs> he's, he's a strong guy. Oh. So, uh, who wants to read the three-body problem? I've heard of this book. I'll, I'll do it. Okay. Um, Three-Body Problem by Sixin Liu, translated by Ken Liu, who we know well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Set against the backdrop of China's Cultural Revolution, a secret military project sends signals into space to establish contact with aliens. An alien civilization on the brink of destruction captures the signal and plans to invade Earth. Meanwhile, on Earth, different camps start forming, planning to either welcome the superior beings and help them take over the world, which is seen as corrupt or to fight against the invasion. The result is a science fiction masterpiece of enormous scope and vision. I mean, this is like a, a big bestseller in China that got translated yeah. by Kim Liu. Mm-hmm. I was be really excited because I, this guy is really famous over there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think I wonder this, if... This is a trilogy, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But the title is a, great, um, is a great allusion to a science problem. You guys know about this? Mm-mm. Not exactly. <laughs> okay, so I'm not a physics guy. I didn't take physics since 
school, but I, I read a lot of science fiction and I, I've heard of this problem. So uh, if you've got a body in motion, right, uh, you know, snowball going down a hill or something rolling down a hill, um, you can calculate its speed based on its mass and the resistance of the wind and the, mm-hmm. and the ground, right? Um, if you've got two objects uh, that are mo- in motion, you can calculate uh, their relationship and when they will meet and all that because you know their speed and their mass and such. But um, if you've got a three-body problem, uh, you've got a serious problem because the predictive, the the ability to predict what will happen next is excruciatingly difficult. In fact, it may be insoluble, as Hmm. they say, right? Um, So this is typically used with, like, uh, we've got a moon, we've got a planet, and we've got a spaceship, right? The moon and the planet are uh, known quantities. Uh, The spaceship is is got some mass, it's got some motion. But... um, if you've got orbits uh, going, you know, distant into the future, knowing exactly where they're going to be is a lot harder than knowing with the, just the, the planet and the and the moon. So that's, I believe, what the title is referring to. Well, and if it's so scientific in nature, it's best that Ken Liu translated it because he is a scientist, isn't he? I think. I could. I can't could remember. Be. Luke Daniels is the narrator. He's a good narrator, so... Um, this is a good bet to be a, a good novel. Oh yeah. Uh, um, but I, I because it's Chinese I, and I've never read a Chinese novel. Mm-mm. I don't really know what to expect. Well, I've read lots Other of things. regular Chinese novels, but never oh, science how, fiction. How are, what are they like? Regular Chinese novels. Uh, I mean, they're not all the same, but they're just often about a lot of people living in a either in a village or in a bustling metropolis, you know, okay. I'm just not really a good, the key part is lots of people. Yeah. Lots of people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of my students in China, they, you know, or the students from China, they live in, you know, they live in a city of 8 million people you've never heard of. You know, there's so many cities in China that, you know, have, you know, between five and, 10 million people that you've never heard of. That's, that's a seriously populated country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the student I'm, uh, I was talking to yesterday, he's from a, a place in China that has a third of the population of Canada. Wow. What is that it? Xi'an? Uh, no, I'm trying to remember the name. It starts with, uh, but it's, it's not one like, you know, I, I'm relatively familiar with most of the, you know, mm-hmm. the famous places in China, but this was like sort of, a, oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. But just the f- once you start looking like if there's a Wikipedia entry on, you know, the most populous cities in China and it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Well, the, there's so many people in there. The interesting thing about this novel is that, you know, there's a trend in Chinese literature right now to include more things about like capitalism and um, entrepreneurial things but this is set in the cultural revolution where those things wouldn't be valued right Mm -hmm. so um yeah i think it'd be a really interesting thing to throw aliens into (laughs) yeah so i wonder if if it's if it's you know they sent the signal and then the aliens come immediately or uh they say hey we're on our way (laughs) yeah it looks like they're planning for it 
I mean, I I would guess that the title is referring not just to you know the three body problem of the spaceship coming to Earth, but also to like the fact that once you start the ball rolling from a certain point in history, mm-hmm. things are going to change into the future. You know, yeah, it's the unpredictability of uh, one tiny change in the past will affect many other things, and then you've got a three body problem. Mm-hmm. David Brin right. gave it five stars on Goodreads. Oh, wow. Who, who gave it five stars? David Prin. Oh, okay. The Jesus Incident. We're into regular, old-fashioned science fiction. Mm-hmm. By Frank Herbert and Bill Ransom. Um, you know who might want to review this is uh, Brian. He's he's on a Frank Herbert kick. Hmm. Um, this is read by Scott Brick. It's uh, part of a series called The Pandora Sequence. And... Uh, it's 16.7 hours from Blackstone. The last survivors of humanity have been deposited on Pandora, a horrific poisonous planet rife with deadly nerve runners, hooded dashers, airborne jellyfish, and intelligent kelp. (laughs) (laughs) The determined colonists attempt to establish a bridgehead on the deadly, inhospitable planet, but more trouble arises. Their sentient ship, backed up by an impressive array of armaments, has decided it is God, (laughs) and is insisting that the colonists find appropriate ways to worship it. In an attempt to help the people pass its test, ship awakens, ship is capitalized, uh, Chapton psychiatrist Raja Flattery from hibernation. Either the humans pass the test or the race could be destroyed. Sounds fun. Yeah. And it's um, first in a series called the Pandora yeah. Sequence. So. It's going to be an old, it's an old book because Frank Herbert's long dead. But um, I've heard of this. I, I've never, I've never read it. Um, Bill Ransom, I don't know, but I like how um, it's it's got a lot of ecosystem stuff going in it as well. Airborne jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, in, intelligent kelp. All right, somebody should read this next one because I'm getting tired. Well, there's not really a list or anything, but I have seen this added to so many people's to-read lists lately that mm-hmm. that's the first place I saw it in Goodreads because, you know, I get the digest. I'm like, what is this carbide-tipped pens? Mm-hmm. And it's just 17 tales of hard science fiction, and it's a whole bunch of people. It's edited by Ben Bova and Eric Choi. It goes for 12, almost 13 hours. Um, it's from Blackstone Audio. But, you know, I always hear people say, we need more hard science fiction, more hard science mm-hmm. fiction. So here yeah. it is. <laughs> well, carbide, carbide is supposed to be super hard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's carbide Never. science fiction. It's, <laughs> it's super hard. Yeah. Super hard writing. Yeah. Um, so we have a few, actually, just audiobooks of, you know, compilations. So I'll just take the next two. Um, the next one is The Year's Top Short SF Novels 4. Mm-hmm. Um, these are two I get in the mail. Let's see. They're edited by Alan Castor for Infinivox. Mm-hmm. And rather than read the description I have on here, I'll just read the titles and authors. Um, there is Earth One by Stephen Baxter. The Success by Michael Bloomline. The Feral Moon by Alexander Jablikov. The Weight of the Sunrise by Viler Kaftan. One by Nancy Kress. Precious Mental by Robert Reed. Murder on the Aldrin Express by Martin L. Shoemaker. And almost all of these are, when he says SF, he means in space, science fiction, you know, mm-hmm. that type. Um, so that looks good. 
I don't have a reviewer mm-hmm. for that one yet. So. Oh, well, we should get somebody to do that. And um, then... Next one is also Infinivox, right? Yeah, the year's top ten tales of science fiction. So these are shorter stories. Mm-hmm. And there are fewer discs in this one, just eight discs. Um, actually, this is the sixth year's top ten tales of science fiction. So it includes... Zero for Conduct by Greg Egan, Exit Interrupted by C.W. Johnson, Pathways by Nancy Kress, Entangled by Ian R. McLeod, The Irish Astronaut by Val Nolan, Among Us by Robert Reed, A Map of Mercury by Alistair Reynolds, Martian Blood by Alan M. Steele, The She-Wolf's Hidden Grin by Michael Swanwick, and The Best We Can by Carrie Vaughn. So this is like First Contact, science fiction. It's all very narrow again in that genre. So there you go. Nice. I'm excited about the next one. Yeah? The Cosmic Puppets <laughs> by Philip K. Dick, read by Nick Padell. And I want to read this because I, 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 I want to read this book because it's an old uh, Philip K. Dick, 19, like from the 1950s book. All right. It's a novel. Following an inexplicable urge, Ted Barton returns to his idyllic Virginia hometown for a vacation. But when he gets there, he is shocked to discover that the town has utterly changed. The stores and houses are all different, and he doesn't recognize anybody. The, mysterious, the mystery deepens when he checks his histor- town's historical records and reads that he died nearly 20 years earlier. As he attempts to uncover the secrets of the town, Barton is drawn deeper into the puzzle and into a supernatural battle that can decide the fate of the universe. This is fun. Hmm. Um, there's a couple of short stories uh, by Dick that are about you know the towns that are changing. There's a really fun one called The Commuter, in which uh, a guy is always traveling between two places by rail. Um, he starts to notice uh, that there's like a gray mist uh, halfway down the track, like halfway between his two places. And one day he goes out in there and he as he walk, wanders into the gray mist, he discovers a town that was not that was planned, but was never actually uh, executed. And then he's like seeing things happening in that town, like you know, uh, chain restaurants or something. And then he goes and looks at finds the, how the mystery is. You know, it came down to a vote, and the city council decided not to do an expansion or something. And so it, it's like the reality slightly, just little pressure on it, and it, it changes. And then that change starts affecting the neighborhoods, um, so that the the chains that started, you know, the restaurant change that starts in the the gray town starts spreading to the neighboring towns that are quote unquote real. It's very interesting. So, yeah, this sounds totally up my alley. Read along, read along. <laughs> okay, next next up. Tam, you want to take this one? Nope. Silence. All right, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> we have two in a row, Lock-In by John Scalzi. One is narrated by Amber Benson, and one is narrated by Will Wheaton. Um And they're the same book. And so I went looking for a reason. um, Mm -hmm. And I found on his blog, I'll just read what he says. Why two versions? Because it's a cool idea for this particular novel for all sorts of reasons that I will leave for you to discover. Yeah. Mm. Completely unhelpful. (laughs) Yeah. That makes you say, which one should I choose? And then you have to buy both of them. 
It's a scam. It's a scam. <laughs> well, he had a deal where you could get both for like one credit, but it was it, for U.S. Oh, really? people only. I don't know if that's still going on or not. I guess he could fix it. It's a spoiler to tell you why. He's yeah. Yeah. But I guess basically it's a near future thriller about a highly contagious virus and the unlucky 1% and nearly 5 million souls in the United States alone, the disease causes lock-in. They're fully awake and aware, but unable to move or respond to stimulus. And so a quarter of a century later, in a world shaped by what's now known as Hayden Syndrome, rookie FBI agent Chris Shane is paired with veteran agent Leslie Van. The two of them are assigned what happens, what appears to be a Hayden-related murder at the Watergate Hotel with a suspect who is an integrator someone who can let the locked in borrow their bodies for a time if the integrator was carrying a hayden client then naming the suspect for the murder becomes that much more complicated as shane and van begin to unravel the threads of the murder it becomes clear that the real mystery and the real crime is bigger than anyone could have imagined mm-hmm. and both of the audiobooks contain a bonus novella which is like narrated by a full cast so it's kind mm. of fun sounds good yeah, it sounds a little different I, I than the usual fare. I can see, uh, I start seeing, I'm guessing why the two narrators are required. Or Yeah, I'm guessing Chris Shane and maybe Leslie Van. Mm-hmm. But it's well, the entire I, I, book. I yeah, it's good. Yeah. I think that's cool. Yeah. All right. Um, maybe it's like a woman inside a man's body or something like that. Or vice versa. Yeah, I, I think that's where it's going. <laughs> if we had um, to guess. Yeah, that's very cool. And we have two different reviewers for the two different versions, so that oh. should be interesting. That will be cool. I'll, I'll mine it like, one. Uh, Amber Benson's being reviewed by a girl, mm-hmm. and Will Wheaton's being reviewed by a guy. Yeah. Cool. The Battle of the Reviews. I, I, I want those posted the same day. Yeah. He says she said. Maybe side by side. That'd be great. That's awesome. All right, The Martian Chronicles. Everybody knows The Martian Chronicles, right? Yeah, we Seven, have an idea. Three minutes, read by Mark Boyette, uh, which is, this is a fix-up novel, guys. That means it's a whole bunch of short stories that are put together. Love it. Uh, and we did a read-along with uh, Professor Repkin. Sure did. Yeah, so please go listen to that for your description. <laughs> and to listen to the audiobook here, uh, <laughs> the new one from Audible. Uh, and uh, Tam's going to we'll do the next on. one, yeah. Yeah, Tam. Yeah, I brought this up. Uh, so Stephen Baxter's books get published in the UK and possibly Canada a year before America. So I just saw this come up in America recently. Uh, Proxima, book one by Stephen Baxter. Uh, so this kind of sounds like his, if you know his Zeely series, it's like hard science fiction, very wild, like galaxy spanning. So I think this is similar to that. Uh, the very far future, the galaxy is a drifting wreck of black holes, neutron stars, and chill white dwarfs. The age of star formation is long past, yet there is life here, feeding off of the energies of the stellar remnants. And there is mind, a tremendous galaxy-spanning intelligence, each of whose thoughts last 100,000 years. You see what I mean? And, then, and this mind cradles memories of a long-gone age where a more compact universe was full of light. 27th century, Proxima Centauri, an undistinguished red dwarf star, is the nearest star to our sun. How would it be to live on such a world? Hmm. Well, considering the audiobook is 18 hours, (laughs) how many 100,000-year thoughts is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's a mere spec. It's one letter. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, so recently he's been doing more mainstream type novels, so this is like a return to form, his old like Zeely series. Like I read part of The Ring, which I really enjoyed, and that's kind of in that same mode. So mm. what is this about? It doesn't really. I mean, it doesn't really say. <laughs> it's about space. Come on. But <laughs> <laughs> what else do you need to know? <laughs> Plot. <laughs> Maybe there's a better description online somewhere. Well, you'll have to tell us. You'd have to read the review, I think. Yeah. To see what's going on in it. Let's move into dystopia and apocalypse. Yeah, and we probably don't need to say much about Fahrenheit 451. I'm just including it because it's a new narration. It's Tim Robbins, and I'm going to listen to it. This is the movie movie actor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He should be good. Absolutely. It's only five hours. I guess it is kind of a shorty. It's a shorty. Play Gear by Jeff Carlson. Uh, read by Jeffrey Kafer. And it's 9 hours, 22 minutes. I think Jeffrey Kafer might have started as a podcast uh, narrator. Oh, good for him. Yeah. All right. And Brian's going to review it. Mm-hmm. I will read the description. Then uh, It's 9 hours, 22 minutes. I think I said that. Um, the nanotechnology was designed to fight cancer. Instead, it has evolved into a machine plague, killing nearly 5 billion people and changing life on Earth forever. The nanotech has one weakness. It self-destructs at altitudes about 10,000 feet. Those who've managed to escape the plague struggle to stay alive on the highest mountains. But time is running out. There is famine and war, and the environment is crashing worldwide. Humanity's last hope lies with a top nanotech researcher aboard the International Space Station and with a small group of survivors in California who risk a daring journey below the death line. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, Not completely unrelated. Um, uh, One of the things I've been doing over the Christmas break was um, playing this game called The Long Dark. You might have seen me tweeting about it. Um, it's a fun game. It's just uh, it's you know from a small publisher, uh, I guess is what you would say, a developer. It's uh, about survival, um, which the premise is there's been a uh, some sort of electrical incident or electrical event, geomagnetic polar event, I think is what they said. So your plane has crashed and you are you wake up, I guess in the uh, north of Canada. It's frozen, and you have to survive. You start with, like, just some clothes and, I think, some flares. And then you have to just wander the landscape and try and stay alive as long as possible. And um, it's a little bit related because it's about, you know, being up in sort of the cold altitude. But uh, one of the things, one of the effects of playing the game um, right now, there's no story. It's just a sort of a survival simulator. Um, is that you are always worried about f- one of four things. Well, pretty much four things all the time. Warmth, food, water, and uh, injury. Oh, and cold, I guess. And cold. So uh, it's five things now. Um, but when you're playing the game, you're always worried about getting cold. So you have to you know, go make a build a fire. It's kind of like that short story by Jack London to build a fire except it's a simulator of it and uh, you know you can get lost because you can't navigate 
because there's, you don't have a compass. And if you just navigate by the stars, that's fine, except when the weather changes, you know. So uh, I bring this up also because uh, Brian's apparently into it, and now his wife is super in, uh, really likes the idea. This um, sort of survival simulator using, uh, uh, you know, being up high in the mountains and running out of food and being too cold and there's wolves and all that stuff. Not completely related, but it just reminded me when I saw Brian is going to review this. Hmm. There's no plague, but you're you're on your own. You're surviving. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very interesting. They're adding new features all the time, and eventually there is going to be a story uh, in episodes. I say. Hmm. Well, um, the next two I'm just going to mention in passing because they're parts of series. Yeah. One is White Plague, a Joe Rush novel by James Abel, read by Ray Porter from Penguin Audio. So it's bioterror, Arctic, kind of a similar story, it sounds like, to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. More about surviving. Um, And then Near Enemy, which is the second Spademan novel by Adam Sternberg, read by Arthur Morey. That's when Random House Audio, Nine Hours, comes out mid-January. Um, so the kill for hire antihero from the first book was called Shovel Ready. Oh, right. I yeah, and that, that came out not that long ago, so this is the no. second one. So the new trend is to release the books in sort of like a staggered uh, sequence. So we, we read it, and then we just say, oh, yeah, that was a good book, and then you see the new book on the bookshelf. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. And mm-hmm. that is our entire list. Well, that's the last uh, of the new releases and recent arrivals for 2014, then. Yeah, just under the wire. Yeah. So we'll meet again in 2015 and, and talk about some new new releases and recent arrivals. Excellent. Happy New Year. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. All right, I guess we're done. <laughs> yeah. We didn't end it on a grace note, but whatever. Let's drink. It's Miller time. Let's drink. Okay.